this is Verity Bly and you're listening to The Beacon, the Oxford International Relations Society podcast. Today I'm speaking with Calypso Nicolaidis, Professor of International Relations at Oxford, a specialist in European studies and a self-described rooted cosmopolitan. It's a pleasure to interview you today. Thank you, Verity. Calypso, what I find particularly unique about your work is that you process big picture current affairs in a way that's both highly analytical and popularly engaging. So I'd like to track the development of some of these themes over your career, beginning with the hot topic at the moment, Brexit. Um, You're currently crowdfunding a book about the three meanings of Brexit, in which you ask what means, means, in Brexit means Brexit. Um, And you do so through the lens of Greek mythology, through the three narratives of exodus, reckoning and sacrifice. So I'd like to ask what drove you to engage in such a controversial and contemporary topic, and if you could please step us through these three narratives. Well, Verity, first of all, let me just say that it's a pleasure to have this conversation with you. And indeed, um, you're interested in Brexit, I'm interested, and I think everyone else, because Wow, what a momentous event it is. Mm -hmm. And we we kind of have a sense, isn't it, that we're living through history with Mm -hmm. Brexit, and not just for Britain, but for Europe, for the rest of the world. It's all about looking to the future, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And um, I, for one, felt that, um, yes, we have all these discussions about how did we get there? Why this Mm -hmm. Brexit? What were people thinking? And... What will it mean concretely in the negotiations? Will it be trade? Ireland, what Mm -hmm. happens? And we have all these discussions on the here and now. And I felt like, wow, if it's such a big event, we should kind of step back and ask what it means. But the problem is it's really hard to have the conversation between Mm -hmm. Brexit, you know, Brexiters and stayers and between British and Europeans, rest of the world, you know, young and old, all Mm -hmm. these different crowds have different languages, way of speaking about it, way of sensitivities, yeah. etc. So I guess my question to your generation becomes, hey, isn't mythology or big stories, archetypal mm-hmm. myth, Bible, Greek myth, etc., you know, does it speak to, for instance, your generation? Mm-hmm. I mean, do, have you read Percy Jackson? I don't know. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think, um, like, I grew up reading some of the Greek myths. I agree that it's useful to turn back to those big big ideas when there's so much upheaval just to make sense of it all so I'm glad and I you know part of my um, idea is has been that indeed I want to reach out to the next generation you know my children are adolescent Mm. bit younger than you but you know their generation your generation my students whom I love and um, yeah so you know you you were you you familiar Mm. you're familiar Mm. with these myths so um, so that, that's why I thought, well, let's, let's use myth and let's crowdsource. Yes, indeed, you, you said crowdfunding mm. is indeed the method because in a way, this is a funny thing, right? Because um, in, in a way, the medium is the message. Mm-hmm. Doing it through yeah. crowdfunding, through reaching out is a way of saying, I'm interested in the democratic mm-hmm. conversation. Yeah. And I'm also interested in how we can make Brexit a, a kind of more constructive, positive sum mm-hmm. uh, conversation between the Brits and, and, yeah. and the Europeans, you know, with bargaining. Uh, uh, yes, but you have to kind of resolve a problem together. Okay, so that's why the crowdfunding, that's the, the whole uh, trying to make sense of Brexit. And just in a nutshell... Um, Exodus is is really the mainstream Brexiteer story, but also 
fe- Eurofederalists who want to say, this is the British problem. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they think of themselves as the people who uh, conquer their freedom and get away from the mm-hmm. shackles of, of Europe. So if you, the more you think about it, the more you see that it sounds very mm-hmm. much like Exodus. Yeah. Except that, of course, nobody's leaving Britain or those who are leaving Britain, there are mm-hmm. people who are leaving Britain, Europeans in particular, uh, EU citizens. Uh, so it's a bit the other way around from mm-hmm. the story. It's a bit complicated, but hey, you'll have to read the book. Mm-hmm. Reckoning, you know, let's go back to Oedipus. And when mm-hmm. he finds... Reckoning is like, oh, no, this is not a British problem. It's like apocalypse. It's a problem for Europe, for everyone. Mm-hmm. It's a real big deal. It should shake us up. And it's about kind of seeing the truth and, and what happens when you see the truth. I mean, is there a last judgment? Who's going to be mm-hmm. punished? And what if you reckon with the... How do you reckon with the truth? And Oedipus, for instance, that you yeah. remember Oedipus, and when he figures out what he's done, like kill his dad, marry his mom, not mm-hmm. great. You know, he blinds himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's trying to see the yeah. truth, right? And um, and then you, the third one is sacrifice, saying, well, you know, no, maybe it's not so bad, say many Europeans, because once again, Britain is sacrificing itself on the altar of the future of mm-hmm. Europe. And I don't really like this heroic sacrifice notion, so I replace it by an ironic sacrifice. Mm-hmm. If we want to know more, you guys will have to read the book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of the um, other ideas that you're known for um, is the term democracy um, as a conceptual framework for the European Union, um, which is particularly useful given we're going th- through so much change with the EU. Um, and you describe democracy... Um, where the EU is a union of peoples who govern together, but not as one, where demoi is the plural of demos, so peoples rather than a singular people. Um, Could you please describe this framework and how we can apply it to what's happening today? Well, uh, first of all, um, thank you for delving into my (laughs) theoretical musings, uh, because indeed very related to Brexit, to the extent that I think democracy to some extent describe what the EU is or has Mm -hmm. been trying to become. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the euro crisis and other policy areas betray the ideal of democracy, right? So first, and and I think that in part Brexit, if we want to theorize about Mm -hmm. it, is is that it can be in part explained in my language by saying, "Mm, you know, the EU projected too much wanting to be a federal state, a democracy, sure, very decentralized, you know, it's not a Mm -hmm. super state, but still there is an obsession with oneness in Brussels, which make British people uncomfortable Mm -hmm. in their majority, even if they like the idea of European cooperation. So when I was um, part of the negotiation of the European Convention on a Constitution in 2001, 2002, Mm -hmm. so quite a while back, 15 Mm -hmm. years ago, I felt like mm, we have to think away from the tyranny of dichotomies, I said, mm-hmm. you know, that we have this Europe where on one hand you have sovereignists who say, oh, we should just be a b- bunch of states collaborating, yeah. but no big binding stuff, or those who were more supranationalist and wanted one Europe. And, but mm-hmm. I s- thought about it, and both of these sides have one thing in common. They think that democracy happens with one demos, either at the national yeah. level or at the supranational mm-hmm. level. And I thought, no, 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 Europe is much more interesting than that. It's a third way. Mm-hmm. It's all about transnationalism. It's all about really building the interdependence between national democracies. 
And sometimes people read my democracy as yet another way of saying sovereignist and just forget Europe. Yeah. No, because it's actually very demanding an idea mm -hmm. because it's an idea, you know, union of peoples who govern together, but not as one. That's really hard mm -hmm. because you, it means you have to really be open to each other, yeah. regard each other's interests with great attention. And that's also why I want a constructive Brexit, because in a democracy, you have to really care about each other's interests. Mm -hmm. You've spoken about how it, we've the EU has a demanding task ahead if it is to become a democracy. What's the biggest threat facing Europe today? First of all, you know, my work as a social scientist is not to... Um, try to predict the future mm -hmm. because there's nothing harder to predict sure, than the future. Sure. <laughs> and so I think what we've seen in the last few years is that, you know, crisis come from left and right and mm -hmm. it, it, nobody, I, I didn't predict the financial crisis. The refugee, you could kind of say, well, it was yeah. coming. But so, you know, that exercise, uh, I mean, the, the, the biggest threat to me is, you know, we have all of these challenges, Brexit and uncontrolled migration and the euro crisis is not settled. Um, and of course, then the more there is a kind of technocratic approach to this, where people have a sense, rightly or wrongly, that is kind of negotiated uh, without them, the more you have the populist reaction. So mm -hmm. all of this shake well and it creates a euro that has lost in part its legitimacy. So the biggest threat for Europe today is indeed not to take these signals as real reason to rethink and retransform the polity mm -hmm. in a way that is democratic transnationally, in a way that is owned by the people and the citizens. And so you've, you've been quite outspoken about these issues and you've analysed them in your work um, and also spoken at conferences and engaged with political bodies about them. How does that personal engagement with Europe inform your work? Well, you said it at the beginning, Verity, that, you know, um, it's been a commitment forever mm -hmm. for me to bridge um, social science. I'm quite theoretical, but speak to the world because we live in mm -hmm. the here and now. So I try to write without jargon. I try to write about issues that people care about. Yeah. I try to translate complex ideas in, in really simple uh, notions mm -hmm. uh, as well as language, really. Mm -hmm. um, that's when I write. I mean, and I also think and try to make teaching and my interaction with my student. I think it's not that I try, it's instinctive. That is very much mm -hmm. at the center of my life and mm -hmm. how I think about my ideas because students bouncing things off my students is the way that I you know, progress, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And what do you think it's important to interact between academia and no, the real world? definitely, definitely. I think, so, I'm a history and politics student, um, and I think it's the interdisciplinary learning and engaging between theory and practice. That's where the most productive stuff is. And, of course, the university agrees, and, you know, increasingly there is this impact assessment when mm -hmm. we're assessed by the government, you know, what impact you have on the real world. Uh, we call it also knowledge exchange. It's all over our websites. We try to make little films. You know, mm -hmm. here we are, you and me, you know, doing Posca. Really being, the, being in the 21st century yeah. and trying to use also the technology of the 21st century, uh, in, you know. Um, so that's kind of almost institutionalized. Mm -hmm. 
But I think my sense, I'm not going to tell what anyone else should do, because first of all, there are people who are just, just love theory, and mm -hmm. they're not, they said down the road, yeah. you know, in the long run, you know, I mean, was Kant thinking, well, he was actually thinking about creating peace in Europe. So, <laughs> you know, that's not a good example. But you have, you know, philosophers who, mm -hmm. who have an impact that yeah. hundreds of years later, and they're not necessarily speaking concretely to issues. So th there are many different ways of having an impact. But I do feel that we are now in a, in a super exciting time when, you know, with the internet and social mm -hmm. media and people my generation you know it's not as natural i mean for you you're like it's in your di digital children mm -hmm. it's in your dna but for me I, again i tried to learn from my kids from my students that's why you know in the run-up from brexit i don't know if you know but we did a facebook page okay which was called britain please stay mm -hmm. and with my students both here and in sciences po with other mm -hmm. colleagues and friends and where students from all over Europe uploaded 15 seconds videos saying, hello, I'm Johannes, mm. you know, want to say Britain, please stay because yeah. I don't want to be left alone with the French as a German <laughs> or something like that. But I learned from my student something I didn't know, which is that if you want young people to sk skim through videos, they have to be less than 15 seconds, yeah. which is something, you know, I wasn't aware of. So anyway, but the point is that uh, the overall point is that it's it's kind of fun and you shouldn't do it because you feel you have to or mm -hmm. this you'll be assessed. You know, it's a matter of who has this instinct. And I, mm -hmm. I also believe that if academia has to also be fun, because <laughs> if you look bored, you're going to bore your, bore yeah. your students. Yeah. Right. And because so I, I feel that instinct quite deeply to, to enjoy what I'm learning and to try and um do it in the most like stimulating way possible and to talk about it with other people but sometimes I feel that because of the rise of technology everyone's flooded by information. Gove um, stated that like, the public has had enough of experts so again you've got people sort of resisting information th informed by academia or theory. How does that instinct sort of get out with those challenges? Well, yeah, I, I don't have an answer to this. I mean, it, you know, do we take Gove seriously when he said that? Well, perhaps, you know, he reflects what a lot of people think mm. uh, to the extent that experts do not speak in ways that are accessible or they might be accessible, but then they sound condescending mm -hmm. and they don't bring people in or appeal to people's experience. So they, yeah. you know, so... Uh, I think when you're criticized, you shouldn't knee-jerk react and say, oh, stupid mm -hmm. Gove, you know, how can he say this, especially since he's an sure, expert, or, sure. you know, <laughs> how can he treat us like this? We yeah. academics, we have a PhD, and we've, yeah. you know, spent years and years <laughs> yeah. learning things or whatever. No, you, you should kind of ask, well, you know, is there a problem? On the other hand, of course, we should also... Um, reject or at least resist, you know, people who stigmatize entire groups mm -hmm. and say, you know, that because at the end of the day, as you said, a verity, you know, there's a lot of noise in the system. Mm -hmm. As in we have so much coming to us, you know, all of us, you but also me. I mean sometimes I have problem working trying to because I have to read all these things that yeah. you know, yeah. I I'm someone who was a student before the internet and it was very different. You know, mm -hmm. you knew, oh, today I'll read this book, you know. Yeah. But now you're on your screen and everything is coming. So it you know, experts, quote unquote, you know, there are people out there who can filter this. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Maybe they're really good journalists who write a great article or they're, you know, the reviews of books. But somehow you have to rely on some sort of mechanism made of people mm. who filter all this noise for mm. you and try to and you try to kind of access the most interesting because life is time is scarce. So, you know, yeah. So that's that's uh, I think, you know, one of the very big challenge of our times. Yes. Um, and to finish off, because I know your time is precious. Um, do you have any tips or advice for students aspiring to a career in international relations from an academic point of view or in terms of policy making? I wish I did. <laughs> you know, the magic wand. I mean, I, I think my first advice is follow your passion. Mm-hmm. You know, don't do things because you think you have to. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, uh, to balance that, you know, as you study, you, you really want to try to put, put yourself beyond the one day. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's, you know, hard work. And yes, it, it pays at the end of the day. Um, try to read, you know, entire books or at least entire chapters. I mm-hmm. think for your generation, it's even harder. You, know, you, have, you do bits and pieces and you go to Wikipedia and you have a summary there. So, I mean, just deeply in, involve yourself with the ideas that you're confronted mm. with uh, and in doing so constantly exercise your critical mind that's mm-hmm. so important I do see sometimes students who uh, will summarize so and so says this and so and so says this and so and so says this and you're like okay your essay is a reading list you know but mm-hmm. you need to make up your mm-hmm. mind uh, so you know hone this skill so that's kind of the method now in terms of the longer trajectory um, there is no, um, life is full of serendipity and contingency. And here's me, you know, I went to the U.S. for two years when I was mm-hmm. 21 to do a master and I stayed 16 years and I did a PhD and I became a professor when I had no idea that's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I thought I wanted to be a diplomat. Mm-hmm. And, but life took me in another yeah. direction because my professors encouraged me and then, you know, other mm-hmm. things happened and I met my husband in the United States and, so life takes you places. Yeah. I also, as a woman, uh, think that there is nothing harder, of course, than to balance our life as moms or, and, and as professionals. But it, there's also nothing as re- rewarding. So for me, I feel that I have been uh, blessed, really, with the possibility of being in this amazing University of Oxford and having, you know, a family, um, and then extending this family through, Mm. you know, my students, I feel that this contingency, you know, brought me somewhere Mm. where I'm happy. Uh, And I think part of the secret is to let this contingency take you. So to be open to opportunities that maybe you're meeting someone, maybe you're Mm. pursuing an idea, maybe you're connecting with an organization, and you let these opportunities happen and take you places. So being kind of open to the world, leading a mindful life. Mindfulness is a mm. word that's thrown around these days very much. And I think it's very important to meditate and be mindful. Um, but there's a mindful way of living, you know, where you're, whoa, look at this amazing, you know, sky. And what does it tell me? And, and you're just 
kind mm-hmm. of let yourself be taken by the world. Yeah. And that's really important and to lead a balanced life. <laughs> thank you very much for having me. Um, and thank you very much for agreeing for the interview. Um, and yeah, um, I encourage all the listeners to check out the European Studies Centre's Facebook page for their events and to keep listening to the Beacon to hear more, more podcasts like this one. Thank you, Calypso. Thank you.